Welcome to Feed, a food systems podcast presented by Table. I'm Matthew Kessler. This is a mini episode where we interview with Table staff about a recent publication. We're going to jump right into the conversation as Feed co-host Samara Brock kicks us off. So part of what we do at Table is try to take complex and controversial topics and explain them in a straightforward manner, as straightforward as we can. Helen Brewood, Research and Communications Officer at Table, has recently done a piece on eco-modernism that she's here to talk with us about today. When did you first come across the concept of eco-modernism? So I was trying to think about it, and I can't actually remember the first time. But I think I probably came across it through the writings of the Breakthrough Institute, which is a think tank based in California that focuses on technological solutions to environmental problems. And I probably came across the Breakthrough Institute while writing the Fodder newsletter. Can you give us a 30-second pitch of what eco-modernism is? My understanding, which is mostly based on the Eco-Modernist Manifesto and the Breakthrough Institute's writings, is that eco-modernism is a way of thinking about environmentalism that focuses on both human welfare and on freeing up land to conserve ecosystems. And the method that you would use to free up areas of land for conservation is to intensify the production of resources such as food and energy so that we're using less land to make what we need and leave more room for nature. And it's a bit different to other forms of environmentalism in that it doesn't necessarily assume things are good if they are made in a natural way, and it doesn't assume we all need to be living rural lifestyles. So it's about using technology and also government policy in order to free up land for conservation and also meet human needs. And what does it mean to make more room for nature? It means using less land. Although not necessarily in a completely clear cut, this is land that we use and this is land that we don't, because eco-modernists do recognise that most landscapes have been inhabited by humans for centuries, millennia, and many landscapes that we think of as natural are in fact managed by people and have been for a long time. It's about trying to rely less on natural ecosystems for the resources that we need to make. And if we can find a way of creating something that we need, such as food, while using less land, then we should be doing that. What are the specific implications for food and agriculture? So the manifesto doesn't actually talk about food very much specifically, but looking at the writings of the Breakthrough Institute gives us a bit more of of an idea about what an eco-modernist food system would look like. Some of the specific things are, let's say, instead of harvesting wild fish at unsustainable levels, it would be better to have aquaculture, if that can be done in a sustainable way. Instead of uh, hunting wild animals for meat, it would be best to raise livestock, if that is less harmful for the environment. There's less focus than certain other strands of environmentalism on changing diets. It's more about meeting demand for certain foods in a way that is more sustainable, in theory. It's about increasing yields and intensifying the production of crops to avoid the expansion of agricultural land and the conversion of ecosystems into farmland. So, for example, as far as I can tell, eco-modernists are generally okay with things like genetic modification or technology that could help monitor humidity levels or fertilizer application on farm to use resources more efficiently. 
But I, I was actually quite surprised that I found relatively little about something like uh, cellular agriculture, which to me seems in line with principles of eco-modernism, but there's not as much out there about eco-modernist cellular agriculture as I would have expected. Do you think that's because it's a new technology or is there another reason why they haven't widely adopted its development? Probably it's because it's a new technology and the environmental benefits are not yet proven. So at table, when we write these explainers, we have them reviewed by multiple parties, people who usually fall on different sides of the debate or come at the issue from a different background. And interesting and unique to this piece is that you had to put up a disclaimer in the beginning of it, talking about the review process. Can you talk about the review process? It was difficult. So the aim of the table review process is that we produce a piece of writing that people who hold differing views on the issue can agree at least represents what the disagreements are in a fair way. And I found this actually very difficult to achieve with this piece. And part of the reason was whenever I was writing about, for example, a criticism of eco-modernism, some reviewers felt that I was very biased in one way. But if I was writing a defense of any this talking point, then other reviewers felt I was biased in the other way. So actually coming up with a single piece of text that all the reviewers could agree was fair and impartial didn't really happen this time. So what did happen? How did the piece pan out? There were some talking points that some of the reviewers thought were not really legitimate arguments, and that even it, it might even be harmful to include them, even while saying that this is just an argument that's made. But because the table approach is to describe the arguments that are being made on both sides, we made the decision to keep in these description of critiques and counter-critiques um, in most cases. And how did that affect the review process? Were all the reviewers on board with that? Uh, one reviewer decided not to back the piece and remained anonymous. Uh, the others were happy to be listed. Um, as reviewers, but I included in the disclaimer that it should be clear that the reviewers don't necessarily agree with everything in the piece. Uh, We use their feedback to improve and strengthen the piece as far as possible, but not every reviewer necessarily agrees with our descriptions of the debates that are happening. It's interesting. So this is the first time it's happened with an explainer. Is there anything particular to eco-modernism that you think led to this kind of inability to come to consensus? I think it's quite a contentious issue, partly because some of the critiques around it suggest that it's not, it's a movement that isn't being used in good faith. The suggestion is that it's using a particular political and media framing to promote solutions that might be somewhat in line with the status quo of intensification. And That's the sort of argument that's difficult to describe without suggesting that it's true. It's quite politically charged, I think. Some of the authors of the manifesto had previously run as political candidates. They have backgrounds in PR and marketing. And I think there's a bit of distrust of the movement. But to even talk about that critique kind of implies that an eco-modernist reading that critique might think that we're not treating the debate fairly or impartially. I wonder if you could share a specific example of where an eco-modernist advocate makes a point and then a critic makes a counterpoint. 
So I can talk about the example of planetary boundaries. Before I read a lot about eco-modernism, I pretty much took the concept of planetary boundaries for granted because it's commonly used in a lot of environmental thinking. And it's the idea that there are certain limits within ecosystems that if we have enough of an impact, it might push them into a new state. For example, a climate tipping point where if we put enough greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then we might reach temperature where feedback loops start kicking in, uh, such as more methane being released at the poles and causing more warming and so on and so on. And we might actually move irreversibly to a new, much hotter state. So that's the climate tipping point and the boundary would be sort of point of no return. But the same concept is applied to more than just climate. Uh, but what I found when uh, when I was writing this piece was that not all eco-modernists actually agree with the planetary boundaries framework. They tend to acknowledge that there are tipping points in the climate system, but they argue that other impact categories don't necessarily have a clear tipping point, and therefore saying that there is a planetary boundary at a particular point is more of an arbitrary expression of what this system should be like. So it's not a clear-cut limit. Underlying this discussion about planetary boundaries is different ideas about limits. And you mentioned earlier that people in the eco-monitors camp don't like the framing of planetary boundaries. What is their main critique? I think the, the phrase that we used by some of the reviewers was the planetary boundaries framework is scientifically invalid. And I believe this was referring to the idea that there were not clear-cut boundaries in some of the impact categories. However, I think another issue is that the eco-modernist framing means that if we use technology, we can vastly increase the amount of uh, material goods that we're able to produce from, say, a particular area of land or thinking about the entire planet level. And the argument is that if we have enough renewable energy to power a lot of material production and recycling of materials, then arguably there's not really much of a limit in terms of level of material consumption that the planet can sustain. I think that's really interesting because if you hear someone denying a climate tipping point or a planetary boundary, you, you might think of them as not caring so much about the environment, but that's not where eco-modernists are coming from, right? No, I, I don't think that's where eco-modernism is coming from. I, I do think eco-modernism cares about protecting ecosystems, although it's more from the perspective of we need ecosystems to carry on functioning in order to look after human well-being. It's not so much about there being an inherent value in ecosystems, although there is some discussion about the different ways in which people might relate on a sort of spiritual or emotional level to ecosystems. Emma Maris, for example, has written about interwoven decoupling. And she's saying that even if we have a, a model of conservation that assumes there are areas that will be freed up for conservation and there are areas that will be more urban, people can still have a relationship with natural landscapes. They can go rock climbing or um, foraging or many other uses. So having spent so much time looking at depth into eco-modernism, 
and critiques of eco-modernism, did you end up changing your mind about any beliefs or opinions you held dear? I think I wasn't aware of how much debate there was around the validity of the planetary boundaries framework. I don't entirely agree with the critique that it's not valid. It seems that eco-modernists do think it's valid in the case of climate change, but I think personally, even if there isn't a clear tipping point or a clearly defined boundary in other impact categories, that doesn't mean that there aren't some levels at which there's a dangerous level of change. That was something where my understanding changed. Um, Did any of my values change? I don't think so. Not particularly. It was an interesting topic to me because it's one where I can sympathise to some extent with both sides, if we're thinking of it as both sides. I come from a background in chemical engineering. I've spent some time on a lab-grown meat project. I don't see technology as something to be inherently afraid of. I think it can be incredibly useful and help us provide resources in more sustainable ways, in ways that can meet the needs of everyone around the world. But on the other hand, I do see that there are many dangers with technology. And I do think we need to think carefully about the extent to which we need lifestyle change as well, which is something that ecobondism doesn't focus so much on. So in a way, I agreed with some eco-modernist points and some points from other strands of environmentalism. And I think I'm still somewhere in the middle. And where can people read the piece and follow your work? You can read the full piece at our website, which is www.tabledebates.org forward slash explainers. You can find all of our explainers there, not just the eco-modernism one. And where can people, I'm just trying to get you to plug the newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can get updates from Table via our mailing list where we send out our newsletter fodder. And we also send out updates for this podcast and events that we run. And you can subscribe to that at www.tabledebates.org forward slash fodder. big thank you to Helen Brewood, who's also the curator and author of Fodder, sending it to your inboxes each week. If you'd like to not only read the explainer, but listen to Helen and two of the other reviewers talk about eco-modernism and degrowth on the limits to growth, lifestyles, and media narratives, you can join us for a table-hosted event on June 15th. The event is free, and you can find a link to register in the episode show notes or on the table homepage. This mini-episode was edited by me, Matthew Kessler, with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Table is a collaboration of the University of Oxford, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, and Bachman University. We hope you read this and other explainers, which are all found on the Table website. And if you subscribe to the Fodder newsletter, you can stay up to date on Table activities. Talk to you soon.